0: blog talk radio
1: blog talk radio
0: this is appsats radio help for partners after sexual betrayal we talk about it here
1: betrayal trauma
0: we are apps certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis There is nothing we won't talk about. So, I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so, to me, that says... He's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. And I happen to know that that is how he wanted closeness with her because I worked with that couple. And they really had to set some pretty strong boundaries to get to the place where she could feel safe having sex with him and I know that that can feel pretty difficult you know sex is a it's an unusual issue anyway why because what we know to be true is that it's that thing that you don't really talk about it's uncomfortable Uh, your parents probably didn't say anything about it or if they did it was very definitive it was black and white there was no discussion There was no opportunity to dialogue, per se. And so most men and women rely on how they feel, what they believe to be true about sex, what they're taught playground, um, what they're taught in health class. But they don't really get uh, an opportunity to understand how important it is to be able to ask the important questions. And so now fast forward, and you've married somebody who has betrayed you in this way, but he's betrayed you in so many other ways. More than likely, he's been distant. You know, most sex addicts disconnect from their families so that they can continue to do what They need to do. And that can be very, very rough. And so I'm here to say that most of the time um, sex is not an easy conversation to have at all. And it makes it very tough, then a betrayal to figure out how to navigate that sexually. And so oftentimes. Sex is absolutely the last thing on the table to discuss. Now, think about your own early conversations with your partner. What did you talk about when it came to premarital sex? Did you negotiate and compromise? Did you have a firm line? Did you have boundaries? What did you do? It is so important to really um, navigate that early on by modeling that with your kids, helping them to talk about things so that they'll at least feel comfortable asking the tough questions. And if they can't do that with mom or dad, who can they do it with? And that's why we know that marriage can be so tough and betrayal even tougher and then renegotiating sex, incredibly difficult. And so boundaries can be awfully important. Now today we're going to be talking about marriage. And we're going to be talking to a woman who helps couples navigate in marriage, with betrayal, and not necessarily with betrayal. She's going to be talking about her experiences across the board. And she says, where I think I can serve your audience is talking about connection and attachment and why coming out and talking to my clients and getting their take on things, has helped me really understand what marriage as well as sexuality is all about. Tracy Rubel, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, she is going to be talking to us about a subject that's difficult to talk about any way you slice it. Developmentally, sex can get tough. I mean, you know, I talked to a woman today who said... My son is 10, and we spent six years trying to conceive him. And then partner betrayal occurred, and I just don't know how and when I'm going to be able to trust him again. That's that's her. And I know women that are in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s that say, My body is not the same as it used to be inside and out. And I have so many emotional issues that affect our relationship. And it's coupled with all that insecurity of not feeling good enough. So that's what many women have to deal with. Okay. I'm going to ask you how are you doing through this COVID-19 epidemic? I mean clearly we are on most of us are on week 3 of the lockdown. You know, maybe you're Florida and you didn't get locked down until today, but you were still being encouraged to stay in and you know minimize your travel and Don't be around crowded people. This is really, really tough. And what makes it tougher is if you are in a real tension with your spouse because of partner betrayal and you're confined to the same house with or without the kids, because you may have kids, you may not, but if you're with the kids, I know you, there's a certain part of you that wants to do the next right thing to keep the family happy, right? And boy, that in itself can be tough because then, you know, I have a saying in my office that says, fake it till you make it. And what it really means is for people that are afraid to be a certain way. And so uh, they're it originated in addiction, and, and when you had newly sober people in the program, they'd say, I, I can't get a job. I don't feel confident. I don't, I can't do it. And their sponsor or the fellowship would say, you know what? Take it till you make it. Act as if you are capable. You are competent. And if you keep putting one foot in front of you at all times acting as if, faking it as as you make it, if you will, you will finally be able to walk that path that feels normal and natural, but it's going to take a while. Well, in this COVID-19 situation, you may be at home really faking it till you make it, acting as if everything is fine in this world and in the house And emotionally, you're taking quite the toll. So if that's you, that's going to require super-duper, uber um, intentional self-care. Find some good books to read, you know. Laugh the comedies and time dramas that, that have some levity to them, you know, Listen to some comedy. Do whatever it takes to elevate your sense of self. Okay, now, I don't know. um, I don't know if you're practicing the skills that you need to feel better about this situation. But if you Google Carol the Coach, Box 59, National Control Day, you'll get a five-minute segment I did this week on our local television station. You know, Monday was National Control Day. Who would have thought it? And National Control Day um, is is a day designated for people that want to maintain control. And so they asked me to come on so that I could talk about how it feels not to be in control. COVID-19 does that, right? And what I know to be true is you're always able to form some sort of control. You know, even in a situation that absolutely feels like there's no control, you have your thoughts and your feelings and you can... You can say, I can't control the fact that my husband cheated on me. But I can control the ability to get outside, go for a run, and feed my spirit during the tsunami. And by the tsunami, I mean partner betrayal. Or you might say, I am in no control of my emotions. The insides of me are shaking. I am so activated right now. But in actuality, you can create a bubble bath and sit in that tub and listen to your favorite music and I promise you, you'll be able to dial it down a couple of notches. You may still have that um, feeling, if you will, of not being in control. But the truth of the matter is, if you can dial it down, you can make it happen. You can make control happen in your life. Now, you are listening to APSAC. And this is Betrayal Recovery Radio. And this is specifically partner-sensitive information when you have been through so much and you need to find some control in your life. And we've got Tracy Rubel on. She's coming up in just a couple of minutes and she's going to talk about what it's like to open up communication and how to be in a marriage, how to navigate the bad and the good. And so I am so happy to be able to have her on the show. And so, Hi, Carol. how are you? Well, thanks for
1: having me and for
0: adjusting to you, Zoom. Absolutely. The rest of the audience doesn't even know we're doing this. So tell me a little bit about um, your background and What made you decide that you were going to give back to couples and help them navigate the difficulties of marriage?
1: Oh, I have a a fun story there. Okay. You know, I've been working with couples for 16 years clinically, but I joke with people that I've actually been working with couples since I was four because I was one of those kids whose parents were married six times. Wow. So, I survived six divorces long before I even got married.
0: My gosh. And, and so what was that like for you, Tracy? I mean, that's a lot of attachment issues and a lot of abandonment.
1: Yeah, that's why I've spent a lot of years on a therapist couch working that stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. But I think some of the best therapists are the ones that have spent some time in therapy because we've usually worked out enough of our own stuff that hopefully we're not bringing it into the room with our clients. And I think what it does is it gives me a lot more compassion for what it's like to be a client in the therapy room dealing with really vulnerable stuff, and it helps me be a lot more patient when folks have had really hard stuff happen in their own life, because I've worked through my own. I always laugh when I have colleagues that have become therapists and had never been in therapy. I'm like, how did you even know you were going to like
0: the job? Right? Right, right. And so it was that trauma that you experienced as a child, um, and I'm assuming that that was almost an entire childhood, uh, of divorce and marriage, divorce and marriage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it was, in in a way, I'm I'm sort of living and breathing proof that therapy works. I'm not without my neuroses, but I think I've really fallen in love with my imperfections. I'm really flawed and human, but I I would say that I'm at an earned, secure place in my life, which means that if you have an anxious or an avoidant attachment stance, Mm -hmm. you can do enough work on yourself where you learn to regulate your nervous system so that you don't feel like you're have to freak out about somebody leaving the room or going on a vacation on their own or having friends outside of your relationship. And you also don't become avoidant where you're afraid to talk about deep and vulnerable feelings or you feel overwhelmed if somebody else is sharing their deep and vulnerable feelings. But you have all these ways to self-soothe inside And for me, it really involved a lot of not just relational and attachment dynamics, but I also had to learn a lot about the nervous system and how to track what's happening in my physiology so that I could maybe go, oh, well, I don't actually have to believe everything that I think and feel. It's just more like the weather. It's changing all the time, and I can find a way to really come to a place of peace even when the weather's changing all the time I just learned how to put on a coat and gloves I was just talking with a couple today that I was working with and I said look you guys both really struggle to self-soothe when you're in a fight and then you get nasty with each other and I said it's not that you're not going to have hard things happen and it's not like I still don't have hard things happen but I know how to self-soothe and the metaphor I use is I know how to put on a cozy coat and warm gloves to ride out the storm without having to act out my anger or grief or anxiety. Right.
0: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I know that you really recognize in couples is the fact that, you know, there's this global loneliness epidemic that people Mm -hmm. experience both on an individual and couple level. And I was wondering If you would be able to talk a little bit about that loneliness in a marriage. Now, let me just preface it with telling you, as well, I know that you know, our listening audience is primarily women who have experienced chronic um, infidelity from their sex addict husband. And so they've dealt with a lot of partner betrayal. And right now they're listening, and on so many different levels, they're feeling that loneliness. So what do you think about that specific loneliness in comparison to global loneliness? Yeah.
1: Well, I want to say that I think it's healthy. Isn't loneliness when your partner has betrayed you a response that says, hey, this, this, this isn't working or there's something about this that isn't right for me? And I'm needing connection. I mean, for me, I think we've started to stigmatize loneliness in a way Mm -hmm. that I don't think is helpful. I think what loneliness is is it's an actual signpost that says I need intimacy and connection that is safe and reliable, right? Yeah. And so any time that we've experienced any sort of loss and betrayal is a loss, Mm -hmm. all of us humans tend to feel lonely. Right, because it's an existential crisis of am I safe here in this relationship dynamic? And so, you know, I I once had a a man call me. I was I was on a a TV talk show and I said something that really provoked him. And I said, Everybody gets lonely, and he got really angry and he said, I've never been lonely a day in my life. And I said, It's interesting that he you know, he looks me up on the internet and had to track me down to tell me that, right? Right. And so I said, huh, okay. Well, so tell me more about what's going on in your life. And he was also a psychiatrist, so he's someone in the field. He said, well, I have these amazing children, and I've had this amazing career, and I had an amazing marriage, and my wife just passed away last year. And inside I was going ding, 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 ding. Right. (laughs) Right, because that was a loss. That was a loss, and in spite of having, so for your listeners, they could have beautiful, amazing family members, beautiful, amazing friends, an amazing community, but the loss of their primary person to a betrayal or to addiction is still a loss that will register in the attachment system and have us feel lonely because our attachment system is going into what is proximity-seeking behavior, right? So the psychobabble is that, you know, our primary attachment objects are ones that we want to keep close, and that's kind of wired in. They used to think that our proximity-seeking behavior ended when we were little, right? But the research has shown that all those same parts of the brain and the nervous system get lit up
0: in our romantic
1: attachments, and so when that person is away from us, either through death or betrayal, or even just going on a business trip, we can start getting a little nervous system hitch that has us wanting to reach for them. But in the case of betrayal where we might decide, hey, it's not good for me to reach for them, or I don't want to reach for them, they're still going to register in our body and our nervous system as loneliness. So what I want to say about it is, I think it's we've got to look at it as, as the way that it's healthy that it's a good sign that you're it's a good sign that your nervous system is functioning just as it was designed to do. And I don't want to say that flippantly and go for the woman that's listening going, well great, gee, thanks for telling me that my loneliness is healthy. What I do want to say is, and then how we respond to it inside is the next second step of the healthiness cycle. How do we actually fill it up with some healthy relationships that are going to scratch that itch? Because it's it's something that does need to be scratched, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so your recommendation for additional ways to scratch that itch might include. So first
1: I do believe that starting inside first, because if we're, for example, if we aren't able to take in nutrients, then it doesn't matter how many nutrients we get. If we can't absorb them, it's meaningless to take a bunch of vitamins. So, First, a healthy dose of self-compassion inside that softens us and makes us more ready to receive good connection. So if I'm feeling really lonely, what I first do is I might sit down on, on my chair, my sofa, and I usually put one hand on my chest and one hand on my, because that self-touch actually is, is what's called vagal toning. So it sort of helps tone that whole vagus nerve, vagus nerve so that we feel more calm and receptive rather than guarded and protected, right? And I usually start by saying, so I always have an internal monologue that starts with, oh, sweetheart. And I say, oh, sweetheart, I'm really hearing that you want connection right now, and that makes so much sense to me, and I just want you to know that I love you, okay? Mm-hmm. And immediately my whole system starts to just open. Now if I'm going to go out into community I'm not going to be guarded and defended. I'm going to be more open and available to receive all of those good nutrients of connection. Okay. The second is how I show up in those, those connected moments vary. I don't think every connection has to be some deep, meaningful philosophical conversation, but I do think that we have to feel authentic and open. So, one way that I like to do that is to have some shared activity that's on repeat. I find that the intimacy that's developed for people over time as they're in a, like a painting group or I remember after I had my kids, um, I went to, I just wanted to feel connected mothered in a certain way. I mean, from the background that I came from, so I went to an active older adults workout group where the women in the group were 20 years older than me and I just loved being around them. And we didn't talk about anything deep, but what I would do is feel so receptive to their warmth and their caring and their laughter. Um, So that's one way. The other is I I started this street listening nonprofit where we sit on sidewalks and we offer listening to strangers to bring more connection back because the reality is our culture isn't very good at connecting in the first place. And there is something to be said for how we show up in our listening that starts to scratch that loneliness itch because so often when we're listening to people, we're listening for data or information or to get something done or to produce something or achieve something, we're not really dropping in with the guiding North Star of I want to know who you are in this moment. And if we're not listening with that kind of intention, then the connecting probably isn't as nutritive Right, we're looking to get something from the person, or you know, does that make sense, Carol? Yeah, definitely does. Yeah. So those are a couple of the ways, and then therapy is also great. but I, I'm a big believer in regular community, I'm a big believer in deepening into the existing relationships that you do have, that you've had for a long time, and showing up with them in a different way with your listening. It starts to create a depth of interaction that, that quenches that, that loneliness.
0: Well, I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that we at APSATS, which is a partner-sensitive um, clinical program, we believe that... When somebody has been betrayed, and, you know, we're talking sexual and, and emotional betrayal, and we're not talking once, we're talking all sorts of ways over lots and lots of years, that partner has permission, has absolute um she can make the decision to stay in that marriage for a variety of reasons. Maybe she doesn't want to break up her family. Maybe she's comfortable financially. Maybe she doesn't want to have to start over. Maybe she's 75. Maybe she's 25. You you name it. But she gets to decide what she wants to do. And then, obviously, there's that marital um, contract that got severely ruptured and broken and that causes those attachment issues the very ones that you were talking about but then our our mission is to help them seek and find safety and stabilization whether they're living with the person or not then they go through the grieving stage where they get angry and Actually, anger occurs in the first stage, too, and then they get into restoration. They go get into some post-traumatic growth, and they actually are stronger as a result of this, although mm-hmm. none of us would wish this upon anybody. And so when you're talking about ways to self-soothe and, and soft repair attempts that, you know, honey, you know, I just really need to be connected to you, and I love you so much, that's probably in a partner's third stage mm-hmm. of her own journey. And obviously, if she chooses to stay with, with her husband, their journey together. And so I'm, I'm thinking that advice may not work in the first or second stage, but I always say the second in the stage, a partner typically has one foot in the grief and one foot in the um, restoration, and that's how she toggles back and forth until – she finally is so secure in herself that she can begin to trust herself and that relationship again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I know that you have worked on developing relationship fixes and you have helped happily, you've helped couples be happily married with kids and you have uh, really worked on listening to what the general public has to say about their losses and their strengths, what do you think you've learned about human connection? And Mm -hmm. specifically listening that you didn't know as a therapist that you know now because you're such a good listener. Mm. Yeah.
1: Number one, there's one key word that's flashing flashing up in my mind it's about power um i think that when we go to graduate school to become a therapist or we even work in our own lives with our own therapist i don't know that we indict the word power quite so much and i love what how you tied it back into the stages that your clients are in and, and the women that are listening are in because what i heard you say there was look tracy we don't wanna invite someone into a technique that maybe they're not ready for or isn't appropriate for them because maybe they need to be in a stance that isn't in a place of reciprocity, but maybe stepping into a more fuller version of power for themselves and identifying what makes them whole, not how do we make this relationship whole, right? And I've been amazed, all the listening skills that we learn in our couples therapy training, oftentimes active listening and marrying and reflecting, right, what we often don't talk about are the ego states. I'm going to get a little psychobabbley here, and I'll explain it, that we're listening from. So you can pretty much take any technique, but you can be using that technique from a child self in you, or you can be using that technique from a parent self in you, Right? Or you can be using that technique from the what I call in sensory motor language, the wise adult self. So, what that means is you could have a partner in your office engaging in mirroring and reflecting of active listening, but kind of in a top dog parental role like, see, look at how great I am. I'm the poor thing. Let me reflect and listen to you. Right? Yeah. And you can also listen from a child say, like, I'm going to be a really good girl, and I'm going to reflective listen in exactly the right way that the therapist says. And I, I often felt like the technique would miss the ego state that the person was in when they were doing the listening and not tracking. Does this woman actually get to fully feel into a part of herself that's different? and maybe entered into this marriage. I find a lot of people will enter into marriages from a child self or a lot of people will enter into marriages from a kind of a parental authoritative self rather than from a place of equality and that wise adult self. And if we're not listening for that or looking for that when we're doing couples therapy and we're kind of devolving into tried and true techniques, then we may not actually be empowering that person who has some really big decisions to make about how they want to move forward in this relationship, whether together or separate. There's still big decisions about how they want to show up going forward. And so power, is, power and the, the roles that we take on, whether they're empowering roles or disempowering roles, have, have been the big eye-opener for me in the listening that I've done on the sidewalk. Because it's very easy for me to sit there on the sidewalk and maybe have somebody that doesn't have a home sit down. And I have had people that, I had this one man once that was a former Washington Post editor, or not an editor, an illustrator. I wouldn't have known that, not by the way he was dressed. You know, and I would have listened to him from this real top dog role, and I wouldn't have really seen him if I chose to listen from that place but I've really taken on an attempt to listen from a real stance of equality where I'm listening from my wise adult self and I'm listening for not just the wise adult self, but I also can track all the parts, the adults and the child and the parent and the other person. So I bring that into my couples' work now, hoping to empower couples to, like you said, have post-traumatic growth, which I think involves relating not from our woundology anymore which may have been what led to, um, for the person that betrayed or or for the systems dynamic that led to that, that couple might have been really already mired in some roles that were already disempowering to begin with. So post-traumatic growth would look like, how do we share power better here?
0: Mm-hmm. How does
1: that land for you, Carol? That lands at
0: beautifully. And, and I'm a big believer in post-traumatic growth and, I believe you've got to be able to eventually feel all these feelings and then decide, am I going to attach? And when you do make the decision to attach, you've got all that potential to relearn who the other person is, especially when you thought you knew them and then you found out that you didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, I got a question for you because I see that you offer free online webinars that people can sign up for on your website. So I, w- I wanted to tell them a little bit about your website. You have two. Is the website that they can uh, sign up for the webinars, is that the Tracy Rubble website? Yeah,
1: it's, Tracy, it's Tracy Rubble, mm-hmm. Rubble, however you want to say it, T-R-A-C-I-R-U-B as in boy, dot ecom And, you know, these webinars came out of, so I have a, busy practice I have a busy life and I knew that once I felt like I had something to offer because I've been seeing couples for 16 years now I don't think 10 years ago I would have put webinars out there because I think I was still learning right Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm not still learning but I think I have a little bit more to offer now Um, I wanted to put something out there that helped couples before they were in crisis because you know this the research shows that most couples enter couples therapy after they've been sitting on a problem for six years. Mm-hmm. And the thing that always gets my goat is I'll have a couple come in and they're lovely, you know, and they they haven't dealt with something as difficult as betrayal, but maybe they've made it into a betrayal because they betrayed themselves by not addressing the problem sooner So they're wrestling with a lot of the things that your listeners are wrestling with, even though there wasn't a sex addiction or a betrayal, because they've just grown to hate each other so much. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And so you put these webinars together, having dealt with your own trauma as a kid and wanting to help couples, you thought this might be a great way for couples to get some therapy tools without going to therapy
1: without going to therapy and without having to pay for it. Look, therapy is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted some ways for folks to actually get engaged. And I think a webinar is unique because it's actually still a real live person, unlike a book. You've got my facial expression, my tone of voice. We get to interact. It's, they're always live. And I'm hoping that it heads problems off at of the past. Because that's still me meeting the need of the kid in me that had to live through that, you know, young life. If I can help couples get on the right path, and, and again, I want to say that I have. There's so much room for imperfection. I don't expect marriages to be perfect, right? But I'm in a 17 year marriage now. I've kind of married into my dream family, um, and I'm living, breathing proof that it's possible. And my marriage isn't perfect. We fight. Or normal. And I also love on the webinars, people love that I share some of that stuff, too, because I go, oh, good, I'm normal. I'm like, yeah, you're normal. Being human is weird. Being in a relationship is hard, but it's hard and fun, and let's figure out how to make it hard and fun, right? Well, and I just want to head those problems off of the past.
0: Well, and I think you pride yourself on letting them see that side of you. I know that you have a fun fact about you and your husband that – Somebody else could look at, and they would go, "Oh my gosh, how did this couple even end up getting married? Uh, this is just so contraindicated or counterintuitive to what I know to be true." But tell them about that fun fact. So,
1: prior to getting married, you can imagine. So, you, you, all of you that are listening, put yourself in my shoes, right? You've watched your parents get married and divorce six times. You meet you reacquaint with someone that I knew when I was in high school. Um, and I'm 31 years old. We decide to get married. It's 2 weeks before the wedding. And we were going to couples therapy twice a week because I thought I was going to have a panic attack or throw up on his shoes on the altar. I'm like this is new no I don't know if I can do it, right? Even though I was 100% sure about the guy, right? And so at the time I was in graduate school studying to be a therapist and in my last year, I had this crazy idea, and I just felt in my bones it was the right thing to do. So I said to him, I said, I know what we can do. I know it's going to make everything better. And we're talking, when I offered to do this, was 72 hours before our actual wedding. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I got a big roll of butcher paper you know the big sick butcher paper and I cut him a big piece and gave him a sharpie and I cut myself a big piece and I had a sharpie and I said okay I know this is crazy my, my husband is a very feminine sweetheart of a guy I think I'm a little more macho than he is so he was looking at me like are you
0: sure you want to do this
1: I said I want you to write everything you hate about me on that piece of paper and he's like oh my god and I said don't worry I'm going to write everything I hate about you too <laughs> And I said, I want you to write it really big and get your body into it. And he, he just knew that we, I mean, we had been working hard in couples therapy to try to sort out how I was going to be able to do this. And he made this beautiful list of all these things that he hated about me. And I made this beautiful list of all these things that I hated about him. I stood back and I started to cry. And I said, wow, you really see me you really see me. You really know what you're getting yourself into. You know who you are attaching to. And I said, and I, I, need, I need to make a commitment to both. I need us to make a commitment to each other that we're not getting married to try to change those things about each other. And every ounce of anxiety went away because I felt like we were being clear Hearted, intentional, and purposeful at not denying the shadow parts of our personality that could threaten our attachment, but actually saying, I can attach to you because I can see the shadow, I know what's there, and we can move forward. And my wedding day was one of the, I couldn't, my cheeks hurt from smiling so much. I had no anxiety. It was a beautiful day, and I still have a beautiful marriage.
0: Well, and you know the interesting thing about that story, again, as I compare it to the partners that are listening today, is that they probably would have never thought to have asked that, and we know that men that have problematic compulsive sexual behaviors do everything in their um, in their lives to keep that information from leaking out. They never want the family, their wives to know that they have this double life, this dual life. And so it's not like he would have come clean probably at that point. Mm-hmm. See relationships. You can do things like that and share your dark side, if you will. And mm-hmm. when that occurs, that acceptance Is so validating and you know you said oh you really know me you really get me you've really seen me and Mm -hmm. I know we got partners going I wish I would have had that that is what I didn't get and um, a lot of times in AA or an NA um, the partner gets labeled codependent as if she Mm -hmm. knew what was going on and she may have but with sex addiction our partners didn't know. They didn't have a clue what -hmm. the real person was all about. So the fact that you could have that fun fact and have that open dialogue is where we are all getting to. And I wrote this book on empathy, and it's called Help Her Heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their wives heal. And that is the very process by which the sex addict can help his partner heal is by having empathy for her and acknowledging over and over and over again, I know who I was. I, I I believe that that is what has caused you the greatest pain. I want to be different, but I don't blame you for not trusting me. And when an addict, a sex addict can do that, he begins to build that, that trusting process. And mm-hmm. And so hopefully our partners, if the addict is in good recovery, individual recovery, can get to that point where they can talk about their dark sides um, and not trigger the partner, but help to rebuild that trust. I mean, it's just a beautiful depiction. And I know that you don't want to talk battle, but you have um, three building a solid connection. And I thought before we ended today, if you could share what those are um, that you've been taught by the couples that have come into your office. Three
1: big blocks to developing a solid connection. Well, for, for me, the first and foremost is having a, clear sense of expectation that's shaped by our childhood, Mm -hmm. but not just our childhood. And see, this is the thing that psychology gets fixated on. It's also by our culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And our culture does include our families, like what we learned from from mom and dad. The other is, so you were just talking about um, folks with sex addiction who may have, right? A lot of folks struggling with addiction have an avoidant attachment status and avoidant attachment status folks have to, I call it a conserving strategy. Well, that's all influenced by our context, right? So oftentimes we need to learn a little bit about the context that we were coming up when in order to show up in a really good connected relationship because we have some things that we're going to have to outgrow, right? Mm -hmm. I think the old days we used to think marriage was based on duty and roles and it's just not the way marriage is we want real connection and companionship and usually there's some things that have shaped us to to really make connection hard okay so that's number one okay number two hands down (laughs) whether it's something that we've learned or it's something that's happened along the way um, we all have big T and little T traumas that impact our nervous system okay and we have what's called a window of tolerance, I'm sure. I'm already sure that you've talked about this a gazillion times with everyone on your on your show. Absolutely. But for me, it was a game changer, right? And I, there's so many different ways to talk about it. I like to call it the comfort zone, right? When I can keep my arousal systems so that I'm not flying off the handle, I would love to obsess about things I have no control over, so that's me getting hyper-aroused, Right probably don't do the hypo arousal. That's not usually where I go. My husband does though, when he's not in his window of tolerance in those hyper and hypo aroused States, couples don't communicate well. They're definitely not interested in who their partner is. They're interested in survival. And so I tell couples, they say, Oh, it's so worth learning about your body and how your body holds emotion And how do you self-soothe so you can get back into your comfort zone? I was just working with a
0: couple with this earlier.
1: It's always fun for me to ask couples, so how did your parents calm you down? It's really fascinating to to kind of get that attachment history or do an adult attachment interview and find out how people were soothed in their young lives. And then I can quickly invite them in and motivate them to say, well, I wasn't the best. Or, some parts of it were really good and there were some other parts that you missed. Wouldn't it be nice to have a bigger repertoire to come back into your comfort zone so that you can be in connection with your partner? And then the third is, and, and you'll love this. Um, and I think for all of the folks that are listening, I, I know that this part that links to power that I'm sure Carol's talked many times about, I think everyone has to come to a relationship, though, with lines in the sand, that you get to know that there are some things that are real boundary crossers for you. Um, Empathy, you know, Tara Brock talks about idiot compassion. I I don't like the word idiot. It seems a little name-calling, but I I think you get what she's trying to say. She's this really sweet, breathy woman, but she uses the word idiot compassion, meaning that we're not so empathic that we get walked all over, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the reality is that if we're letting people cross our boundaries left and right – we're probably in that child ego state anyway. So we're not really relating to that person. We're just in a child ego state. And I think it's a real disruptor to connection when we don't know where our lines in the sand are. And it's something I think women in particular, because of the gender training that we get in our culture. I also grew up in the church. So I was taught that I was really supposed to be super generous with my time and not have a lot of boundaries from my religion that I grew up in. Uh Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't really allow the person to know what you stand for, and when they've crossed lines with you. That could be many betrayals along the way, even before big, big betrayals happen. So those are the three things that I keep in mind, among others. But those are those are three that are sort of maybe not so textbook that that you would get in couples one-on-one training kinds of stuff.
0: Well, Tracy, I so appreciate you, and I want to remind our listening audience. I'm listening. And we are talking today to Tracy Rubel. She's a therapist. She calls herself a sidewalk talk director. She's now a, a webinar host, and she has three free online webinars through that you can find on her website www.tracyrubel.com. dot com. That's T R A C I. R-U-B-L-E dot com. And as we wrap up the show, I just so appreciate um, not just the energy, but your zest for human relationships and connection. I can really feel that.
1: I feel the same way about you. And I'm I'm thrilled that you're holding a very, very special place for recovering from the trail, because I think it's one of the hardest and most valiant pieces of work. So I want to bow to you, Carol.
0: Well, well, thank you. And I got to say, you are the epitome of post-traumatic growth because I'm always telling people that typically part of that restoration is giving back. And you've chosen to work with couples after being a part of a fractured family uh, Mm -hmm. six times. So thank you, Tracy. And keep me posted and let me know what else you're doing.
1: Sounds great, and
0: likewise. All right. Carol. Talk to you later. And so that was Tracy, and she has really made it her mission to help couples and help individuals. I think you can hear that she doesn't want people to walk around lonely, and so that is so important to um, acknowledge and really figure out How can I be more fulfilled? How can I have more happiness in my life? How can I, if you will, find some trusting relationships that won't let me down? If you've chosen to divorce your spouse, that's your next mission. If you're choosing to stay with your spouse, you still need that on the sidelines. You have to have a committee of people that you can trust. So, I am Carol Jurgensheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and we'll see you next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we'll see you next week.